I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind, made possible in part by Marie Sharp's Hot Sauce, hand-harvested, sustainably farmed, whole fruit and vegetables, certified, pesticide-free, and used within hours of picking, and by listeners like you. You can support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome the owner, proprietor, and chef behind the South's best BBQ joint, according to Southern Living Magazine, and the best BBQ in Florida, according to Food and Wine. John Rivers, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Alexander. Thanks for having me. Uh, John, you transitioned from the healthcare industry to uh, food and beverage, specifically barbecue in the culinary world. Can you tell our listeners about that transition? (laughs) <laughs> I, I can't say it was a uh, an overly planned path or, or one that's uh, taken that often. It was it was more of a, um, a following of my heart. When I grew up, I, I visited a barbecue place uh, weekly with my grandfather, and it just became very enduring to me. And um, I was never a trained chef, even though I, I worked in restaurants um, all through high school and college. Uh, I rarely actually got into the kitchen, and uh, it, it happened um, – when I met my wife and her family out in Texas and uh, got introduced to the two loves of my life, my, my to be wife, Monica and brisket for the very first time. And just went on a, uh, um, a pilgrimage across the country as I was traveling, visiting hospitals and healthcare, I would also visit barbecue places and just picked up all the different techniques and styles and uh, tricks of the trade that different pit masters did and really got an appreciation for the, the variety of regional flavors and how all those meats are prepared across the entire country. It came to uh, to a head into fruition one day, and this is when I was in healthcare. There was a little girl in our community that had cancer, and uh, we became friends with the family, and, and they wouldn't take funds from us, from my wife Monica and I, in order to help her. Um, but they did allow me to do a barbecue fundraiser for them at their church. And uh, what we thought was going to be 20 to maybe 30 people ended up being 450 people <laughs> that, uh, that RSVP'd. And, and Alexander, I, I tell you, I came face to face very quickly with the reality of um, you know, what it was like to be a, a large caterer um, without any equipment or any experience. But Literally, by the grace of God, we, we pulled it off. We, we fed all those people, and uh, we raised a lot of money for that little girl. And uh, as importantly, the outcome, we loved doing it so much that we started what was called our barbecue ministry out of our garage. And for any time that there were families or schools or kids in need, we'd offer to write them a check. But if they would allow me to do so, I'd bring my smoker out on the weekends and cook for them and donate all the food. And Anything that was raised that day went back to their cause. Well, we ended up doing this for four years <laughs> in the garage, and it became uh, such a, a popular uh, mission and hobby of ours. And, uh, that last year in the garage, we served over 40,000 people in the ministry itself. And that basically was the impetus to getting into the first restaurant. And that, in addition to my wife saying, you need to get this out of our house <laughs> and out of the garage, and go and, and find go, follow your passion and your heart and go open a restaurant. Brilliant minds often emanate out of their garages, as was the case with you, John Rivers. John, what was precisely your role in the healthcare industry when you were making that pilgrimage and doing your work in the healthcare space, traveling from city to city, town to town? Well, Alexander, it actually it spanned over, it took me, let's see, 18 years to learn how to make brisket. 
And, and during those 18 of the 20 years total that I was in healthcare, I did, I started in sales, went up into contracting, into business development and uh, lead strategy. And then ultimately I was the president and uh, of a, we, we were about a billion and a half dollar business that I was fortunate to run uh, when the whole ministry and everything started. And, and consequently, that was the role that I ended up retiring from in order to go follow my passion and, and open our first restaurant. As we have endured this pandemic, I'm curious from what lens you've approached it, given your involvement in the healthcare space. What was your engagement with the healthcare system during those 20 years you were working in that profession? A few things. Great question, Alexander. A few things jump um, jump out as, as things that I learned and helped shape us how we pivoted and got through the, the last, 20, last 12 months in 2020. Um, first one was really my role in business development over the years, um, learning how to see opportunities that don't potentially exist today uh, or that aren't clear. That that allowed us as, a, as an organization to pivot when we lost 50 percent of our business overnight. We, we literally lost over 30 million dollars, had to let go over 488 people, and we were at a burn rate of nearly a million dollars a week with not a whole lot of uh, weeks ahead of us in order to protect and survive the brand. And, uh, you know, be it the, the leadership skills of, of running that large of an organization prior or, or just the creative um, skills learned in business development and, and M&A all of, of those years, you know, the team that we have here assembled, we put together um, programs that we would have never imagined that we were doing. We launched virtual drive-throughs in, in every single one of our locations within less than two weeks of being shut down. We were serving food at every one of our locations in a makeshift drive-through with tents and POSs outside. <laughs> one of the most creative things that my team came up with, uh, um, they noticed that there was a, a, a drain in inventory on the retail side of eggs and chicken and, and oddly enough, toilet paper and paper towels. And that didn't exist on the restaurant side. And the team kicked in and we created what was called the 4R grocery store. And so literally as people were coming through the drive-thrus and picking up their barbecue, they were also picking up toilet paper and eggs and chicken. And uh, there was actually a day that we laughed that we were reading reviews and some of the strongest reviews we've ever got, positive reviews in our history came during COVID. And consequently it's because we had toilet paper <laughs> when nobody else did. <laughs> now you are, primarily based in Florida, right? We are. We are. We have three divisions in the company and uh, our restaurant and catering divisions are all located in Florida from Tallahassee all the way down to Fort Lauderdale. We have, we operate out of 23 locations. Our retail division ships product um, all over the country. And we also have a food service division. So when you go on cruise ships and convention centers and actually even other restaurants, um, and eat barbecue. Sometimes it's actually our barbecue that you're eating. And how have you found as a place to operate during the pandemic? And again, with the with the knowledge of business preservation mm-hmm. and with the knowledge of health, how would you assess Florida's handling of the pandemic um, from the lens, both as an expert in healthcare and now an expert in barbecue and the culinary industry. It's kind of funny to say that, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the one area that we stepped into that was very important to me that, that touches on both those areas 
um, or both those fields was a program we called it. It was called Feed the Need. Um, our foundation as a company has, has supported the education system for almost since the day that we opened 12 years ago. And if you recall, when COVID hit and things were shut down, all the public school kids um, were you know, prohibited from going back to on campus and back into schools. Well, in our particular area, in Orange County, there's over 20% of our children, of our students who live in food insecurity, which means that the only food that they had access to was the school meals that were being provided when they went to school. So with them being out of school, it, it created a, a significant challenge to their health simply because they didn't have access to the meals anymore. We teamed up with Orange County Public School and at, we offered at first to them, if you have any locations, if you have any students, any children that aren't getting the student meals, please let us know and we'll step in and help. And Alexander, it went literally from the first week of helping them, we called them gaps. And these were areas in, around the city that uh, the school meals weren't reaching or a lot of cases, these young students, their mom would work so they didn't have transportation to get to where the school meals were being um, delivered and handed out. We went in one week from, I think it was two locations, very small, low volume, helping fill gaps. In less than six weeks, we were serving over 100,000 meals per week in six different counties across the entire state of Florida at 46 different sites. At the end of the day, between the student meals that we were handing out and the family meals that we noticed that when the families were coming through, they didn't have food either. So we started creating family meals in addition to the student meals. Through the end of everything, we served over 1.7 million emergency relief meals through our program, Feed the Need. That is staggering and quite a feat. Uh, I congratulate you on that and the service you provided, but it also reflects the extraordinary inequity um, and, and great need to improve the state of food security. Do you feel like you were adequately informed about just how staggering the deficit was? And, and if so, as we are still in this pandemic, what are the ways you think that we can recover from a policy perspective? You know, I don't think, Alexander, anybody appreciated the extent of the food insecurity in the state because it was it was sheltered and hidden by kids and families going to actual schools themselves. Once the kids were apart from the food source, it became painfully evident to the entire state um, just how severe food hunger is within our state itself. We worked closely with the Department of Ag. And uh, I'll tell you what, they were incredibly supportive. They approved us immediately to start serving food um, all over the state. And we actually got connect connected to the Florida Department of Emergency Relief. So not only was the state responding to students, but they also put us on the pinpoint, on the, on the very first level of emergency relief responses when the hurricane hit up in, in Pensacola uh, to the one that hit down in South Florida, we were being activated to go and help serve meals. So I would say, you know, from that perspective, I was really impressed with the uh, the commitment that the state made uh, to make sure that people were getting food. And, you know, the, the direct uh, government state workers that were leading this initiative were <laughs> incredibly passionate about this. Uh, we were actually on phone calls every single day, seven days a week at 11 o'clock, um, for almost three months straight, 
talking about the need and what we had to do is each one of the organizations, be it Red Cross and Blue Shield or uh, Florida Catholic Charities, it didn't matter who it was, we were all engaged day to day to make sure that people were being fed. Do you and do you think that that this is politicized at the local, municipal, or state level, or do you find there to be you know strong working relationships and sound policy when partners from the private sector, such as yourself, want to bring that generosity of spirit? Uh, but also help pave the way for sustainable change because it's one thing to provide relief and recovery in the wake of a hurricane or a pandemic, much more severe. It's another thing to have durable solutions. And often in order to achieve those durable solutions, issues become politicized. No, you know, that's that's a great question too. And, and I will tell you that um, the result of what we did, um, I think answers it directly. We were the first, this was the first collaboration of the private and public sector to meet the needs of, of the state, of specifically of students and elderly. Um, when we got introduced to a gentleman named Peter Newman, who was leading the initiative up in Tallahassee, we, my proposal to him was, Peter, we just laid off all of these people. I have over 50 vans, catering vehicles, I've got you know, tens of thousands of square feet that of restaurant and catering warehouses and commissaries that are now dormant and dark. Before you call FEMA and before you call engage out of state organizations, you know, please let's see if we can put something together. And to his credit, you know, he came up with uh, the saying, you know, Floridians helping Floridians. And it was keeping the jobs in the state, keeping the food in the state and keeping the funds in the state. And like I mentioned before, not only was it 107, 1.7 million meals that we provided, we actually created three, recreated 327 jobs in the middle of COVID. And we were hiring back people that we had to let go. And they were, they were, they were collecting produce from farmers all over the state, bringing it to our commissary and cooking that, that produce and that food, and then going out into the marketplace and, and serving it. So, you know, I found tremendous collaboration, um, not just collaboration, but uh, new grounds that were being laid and, and, and just a true um, entrepreneurial spirit almost, <laughs> if you can have that in government, <laughs> but an entrepreneurial spirit um, led by Peter of uh, being able to push and position us in order to create that private and public sector partnership. Take us on the brisket pilgrimage and inside your menu at your locations and nationally, um, what on your menu are you most passionate about? Um, and, and how, if at all, during this period, has your menu transformed further? You know, the, the number one seller we have, and the thing that is really is our namesake, uh, is our brisket. And, and the reason that it is, is because of all the, the primal cuts and all the proteins, it by far is the hardest one to prepare on in large scale. Um, when you take a look at ribs and pulled pork and chicken and things like that, you know, those are relatively easier to do. So when we launched 12 years ago, especially in Florida, there were very, very few people, few restaurants that were serving brisket. Um, it just wasn't something that people were accustomed to down here because everyone grew up eating pork for the most part. So actually, when we opened, Alexander, 
um, in our restaurant, you come up to the carver and he's the one or she's the one that takes your order and they're actually carving the brisket right in front of you. And that's done intentionally because we had to teach the market what brisket was. If they were from Texas or Kansas City or Oklahoma, you know, people came in and they were quite excited about it. But other people from around the southeast, you know, we had to give them samples and let them taste it. And and by far now, it's our it's our top seller. And that's really what we have built the brand around. Now, the rest of the menu, every single meat that's on there is representative of a different region of the country where I just found the best in class. So ribs come from our influence from North Carolina. Uh, our pulled pork comes from Alabama or Chris Lilly uh, taught me how to do it. Um, the tri-tip uh, product it was something that we didn't open with on the menu because I never had it before. And we had some guests in from California and telling us, you know, that, that real barbecue was tri-tip. So uh, my operating partner and I got on an airplane and we flew out to California. We tried tri-tip, learned how to make it. And now that's on our menu and it's, it's, it's one of our top sellers as well. Uh, richness and flavor are all preserved uh, impeccably as they travel from place to place amid COVID for those who are not located in Florida. What is the future of barbecue, John, in your estimation, both within your organization as a Floridian, um, but also nationally as you kind of contemplate what is the cutting edge of barbecue you know, one nice thing about, uh, there's always a positive, and one positive thing about COVID, uh, it definitely bolstered the popularity um, of barbecue. And I, and I think for two different reasons. One, it's it's a comfort food. You know, it reminds people of family, of uh, church gatherings, of weekends, of picnics. Um, there's, there's very much a, a hominess feeling to barbecue itself. And I think during challenging times, um, you know, be it in COVID 2020 or even, you know, 12 years ago when we opened in 2008 and 2009 when the market was crashed, people were looking for that feeling of comfort, um, especially at, a, at a, a relatively accessible price. So I, I think that's, um, you know, driven the popularity of it. And the other thing, too, that it has really helped us specifically became prevalent in COVID times was the transferability of it. You know, barbecue does extremely well um, the next day, uh, cold, and, and simply even by putting it in um, the microwave. So, you know, from a, from a to-go perspective, which is so much of where our community and our market has gone to, you know, our product has, has, has really done very, very well because it's, it's met all the needs of the guest. You know, when we went into COVID, Alexander, our to-go takeout business, which also included third party, only represented about 20% of our total portfolio. At the height of COVID, it had breached over 50% of our portfolio. And this is when the dining rooms opened back up. And now it's settled in and we're looking at about 41, 42% of our overall blended. So that transferability and of, of the product itself lining up with where the market and the customer has really moved to, I think it's positioned barbecue very well. You know, our year over year sales are, are doing extremely well. I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for that. They're, they're up, um, and, you know, in a time when so many restaurants are struggling. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I couldn't be more thankful for the way the market has responded to it. And from our perspective, um, we're, 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 we're seeing more competition coming into the barbecue space from other parts of the state. And I think that's a, a general attraction to Florida itself. 
as so many people have uh, moved down here and, and uh, as Florida has really stood out as a state that has kept the businesses open, um, I think both that's attracted both businesses and consumers um, and who, who want to continue life and, and be you know, in a safe environment, but also be able to, to thrive, uh, especially in the business environment. So we are seeing new competition come in this space, but um, that's okay. You know, we keep doing what we're doing. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, we are looking at growing ourselves and uh, have our sights on a couple of new locations that we're hoping to come to fruition even this year. And when I ask you, John, about the future of barbecue, I, I just wonder, given the technological revolutions that have inspired periods of entrepreneurial development, um, in terms of actually the process of, of uh, the pits and what you do, you know, mm-hmm. you are a pit master, you are a chef, um, but the, the mechanics of making the product and then the product itself, given the environmental changes that we've experienced, do you anticipate anything that will evolve with respect to the actual makeup of, of what barbecue consists of or how it gets made? If you really, uh, yes and yes. <laughs> um, restaurants in general, let's just say us and, and barbecue, you, you, you have to be cognizant of market trends and, and where people are going to. And um, it was, I can't say it was an easy conversion because I, I did go begrudgingly, but about a, a year and a half ago, we introduced a, a non-meat uh, option on our barbecue menu. And uh, we did it to appease um, some guest requests. Um, you know, we said we would test it and try it. And it's, it's by no means our top seller, but there's enough of sales and enough customers that are coming in that have substantiated and it's become a permanent part of our menu. As a matter of fact, um, we sell a lot of product nationwide through an organization called Gold Belly. And our number one item that we ship is our vegan burn-ins. And, uh, it's, and, and it's, I think a lot of it has to do because there's just not that many options of that. Um, you know, there's always a a push and a reason and a need to continuously think about um, sustainable um, products. And, you know, we per- we personally as a, an organization, you know, we have lined up specifically and we've converted almost all of our um, vegetable items uh, to local Florida farmers. And as a matter of fact, our, our chain today is the number one restaurant in Florida that buys from local Florida farmers. And we've converted everything from corn to, uh, to green beans, tomatoes, onions, lettuce. And uh, so now we're taking a look at the proteins itself. Well, proteins are a lot more difficult simply because they're, they're, not, they're not slaughtered and, and produced uh, on a local level. Those come from uh, different parts of the country itself. So, um, and, and plus two, there's such a huge price difference in a, um, uh, sustainably organic grown protein that we've put it on the menu over the years to try it. Um, cause I'm, I'm a, a huge advocate and a fan of that, but the price difference that, you know, we're finding that the customer base that's coming in our typical restaurants or t- typical barbecue, they're not willing to pay that, you know, sometimes 40% higher premium, uh, for a product like that. So even though the market hasn't, uh, adjusted necessarily to, you know, sustainably produced meat, 
um, we're finding great acceptance on the on the vegetable side, and uh, we're we're very aggressive in our position on that. The price factor may determine how quickly that process evolves. But as a final question, John, with with respect to the mechanics of barbecue making, mm-hmm. of the cooking, mm-hmm. um, are there innovations that have materialized in these last months or years that have changed practices within your cooking? Uh, or do you anticipate any technologies changing the way that you make your product? You know, it, it's almost an oxymoron because barbecue itself is such a, a, a time uh, honored tradition of, you know, people sitting out by the pits. Now, when we opened, I really had no desire to spend every night sitting out by a pit. And, and maybe this was the, the healthcare side uh, coming in and, and having an influence on it. But I went out and I, I sought a smoker that could run on its own uh, overnight. And uh, we found a, a wonderful brand called Southern uh, Pride which I think we own about 60 units of it today where it, uh, it regulates heat um, even, even though it's driven from, uh, from wood fire and smoke and uh, is able to, you know, we introduce the technology into the, you know, the old, um, you know, guy who gets up at one o'clock, two o'clock every day and goes and lights the pits and, and sitting out there. And, and most importantly, we did it without compromise to the, to the actual end product itself. Um, outside of, of smoking, there's, you know, there's, there's continuous improvements that we've been making um, inside the restaurant. You know, there, there's not a, um, a lot of high-end um, technology-driven equipment that I have found that, that will emulate the, the pure flavor of um, a, a wood-based pit. You know, there's a lot of ovens that will use gases. Um, there's a lot of technology uh, around that area. But it's it it does absolutely come at the comp, in my opinion, at the compromise of the integrity of the product itself. John Rivers, thank you so much for your insight today. 